0: The preaching is found then in Psalm 73 and particularly verses 16 and 17. Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17. As we continue our work through this psalm, we come to these two verses and hear then the Word of God. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end." These two verses provide for us the transition in the psalm. So you'll notice that the struggle is acknowledged early on in verse 2. It's expressed from verses 3 and onward as it identifies the prosperity of the wicked and the struggles of the righteous. And what a blessing that God provides us His Word. You can think for a moment, what would the Christian have if he did not have the revelation of God's Word? He would be stuck with his mere observations, perhaps some degree of help with his reasoning, and yet in the end, the world to come would be hidden from his sight, the riches of salvation and the truths of redemption would all be without knowledge. And so, here we have a great provision in having God's Word. And you can think of this as Paul mentioned something similar regarding the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, one of those uh, clear testimonies of the resurrection, he testifies regarding the same that if in this life only we have trusted Or have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Think of that for a moment. Whatever the um, transformation of our lives may be, whatever our articles may be, if it's only for this life that one is a believer, and if it's only in this life that one believes, Paul says, of all men in the world, the atheist included the most sensualistic, uh, uh, wicked man that is considered the idolater, the hopeless one, everyone else. He says, a Christian would be most miserable. Brethren, we have a whole Bible that reminds us of the world to come. And certainly there are clear passages in the Old Testament of that and the New Testament even clearer because of the resurrection of Christ. And yet, though that is the case, there are occasions when this divine truth is hidden from our perception. It's not that as an article of belief it's emptied of our mind, but as our faith exercising upon that article of faith is considered, it is in many ways eclipsed. And we've seen that in our study through Psalm 73. The psalmist has had his eye upon this life. He's looked at the things the wicked get, and he's seen the things he doesn't have. And in addition, he sees the things he does experience. He sees the great contrast between the wicked, the ungodly who prosper, and the godly who suffer. And so he's struggling. And so Psalm 73 is very much an instance wherein the Lord is meeting with us in those struggles. But it's here in these two verses that we see the great transition. And it begins with great difficulty. And so in verse 16, he expresses that this was too painful. And the word painful has this notion of wearying, burdensome, being worn out. He's overwhelmed, downcast. His knees are shaking, trembling. Some of you have been in physical exhaustion where your whole body is now trembling and you feel lightheaded and ready to faint, look again at what is mentioned in verse 2 when he says, as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Not so much slipping upon ice as we might think, but rather giving way through the wearisome toil of his soul wrestling with the realities that were everywhere surrounding him. It was too difficult, too wearisome for him. And why was it so? Because he was trying to figure it out. I'm thinking upon it, he says in verse 16. When I thought to know this, to make sense of it, to line it up with what should be right, with what's true of God, that He's just and good and faithful, And when I see that the wicked are prospering, but God is holy and of such purity that He cannot look upon sin, and the uh, righteous perish and struggle, but God is the God who remembers His people. When I'm seeing these things, I'm struggling and worn out, and it's overwhelming my soul. Blessed be God that there is that next word, until. It was not to remain in its intensity nor even in its existence. Because though it was deep, intense, acute, and difficult, there was the overcoming of it, he says, when I went into the sanctuary of God, when I drew near to God, when it was that I put my soul before the Lord according to His uh, way of mediation in the temple, the uh, tabernacle, And when it was then that I drew near to God, then that which was too wearisome for me, that which was too burdensome for me and overwhelming to me, was then overthrown." He says, "...because then understood I their end." It was then that I was able to see the part that can't be seen by mere reason alone. Brethren, though this has particular significance to the struggle that we witness when we witness the prosperity of the wicked, surely this very thing that Asaph mentions is true of all such trials to our faith. Painful doubts troubling the soul are overcome by drawing near to God by faith. This is what we see. We'll consider uh, what he begins. I understood therein when we come to the next few verses as he talks about therein, but it's particularly this which we wish to consider, his drawing near to God in his sanctuary, and by that means deriving help. So consider three things then. Firstly, the need for such help. Secondly, the source of help. And thirdly, the way of help, as we consider faith and help by drawing near to God. So firstly then, the need for help, it will be seen on the last day that there is no greater gift given to men than saving faith. Of all the things that children want and adults continue to long for, there is nothing that can match the priceless provision of saving faith. Saving faith is that grace whereby we receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as He's offered to us in the Gospel. And it is because it lays hold of Christ that it is an unmatched grace, gift, and provision. That whatever else you don't have, if you have saving faith, you have the largest gift that the Lord can give a sinner. Because in giving saving faith, He gives you His Son. And whatever else you do have, If you don't have saving faith, you are without that peculiar treasure that opens all of the treasures of heaven. As great as saving faith is, we ought not to think of it as something that does not stand in need of support and help. It's rightly considered, by illustration many times, as a beggarly grace because saving faith is, as is often likened to the empty hand of the beggar receiving what is put into it. The hand itself has no virtue, no ability. It's what's placed in the hand that gives the beggar wealth. And so it is with saving faith. And saving faith, moreover, has degrees. And so there are times when it is strong and clear, and there are other times when it is overcome because of remaining sin and weakness. Well, here we see one such instance of faith struggling, which points out the need for help. And We've labored much in this, so it merely needs to be noted that the need for help is because of the impact of sight, carnal sight, carnal reasoning. So he's seen all of these things. And sight is, of course, the seeing of the tangible realities of this world, broken world, sinful world. But it includes, of course, the experiences of oneself in this life. So it's not just we shouldn't think of sight being what are the organs of our eyes perceive as light hits and is uh, interpreted and so on by our brains, but rather the experience of this present world, the impact of that. And so he's seen wicked men prospering who deal corruptly, who speak wickedly, and who not only have their hands and eyes and targets against men, merely to use them for their own advantage, but actually lift up their mouth, verse 9, against the heavens. And they speak blasphemously against God. And here, the psalmist sees this, experiences this, and expecting their judgment, sees their prosperity while he himself is burdened this by its impact causes the felt weakness that pervades surely not only his physical being but all that he is his whole soul is shaken by this and brethren we ought to realize that though faith itself considered admits of no weakness yet we being a complex thing, a mixture of sin still and grace because of sin within us and the propensity we have to give to this carnal world uh, an audience that it ought not to have and to give to carnal reasoning a strength that it ought not to have, it's often that we stand in need then of help. But there's also the reason for help because of the insufficiency of our own reasoning. And you'll see that in the text when he says, when I thought to know this. And this language is rather expressive. It's a language that's saying when I'm trying to weave it together. When I'm trying to figure it out, we might say. So he's not just sort of waking up, having the thought passing on. I thought about it. But there's an intricacy of mind applying itself to the matters before him and he's trying to make sense of it. And so you can think of this, children, if you think on the back side of some weaving and a tapestry of sorts, you look on the back side of it and you see the strange uh, connection of various threads. And you realize on the other side there's something beautiful. There's a picture, a portrait, a pattern. And so as you're familiar with that, you flip it over and you're looking at the back side and you're trying to track through and see how this thread goes to that one and make sense of how it on the other side is such a beautiful thing. Your mind is engaging with what's before you, trying to make sense of what is on the other side. This is what Asaph's doing. He's looking at all that's before him and he's realizing that what God has said of himself, that he's good, holy, and just, and what God has said about sin, that it's inexcusable, and will incur judgment and damnation, that God hates the wicked, that God loves the righteous, that He cares for them, and so on. He's looking at all of this on the one side of the tapestry, and He says, I can't make sense of it. I can't begin to think that there's beauty on the other side, because everything I'm seeing right now is so out of sorts, I cannot understand. We ought to remember and assert that reason is a great gift of God, that faculty, that power of our mind, whereby we can think critically and link together connections, all of that is a gift of God. He's given us the faculty of our mind in order to think in this way. And yet it is an insufficient faculty in itself when it operates only upon the things which are seen. This is what Asaph's struggling with. And brethren, it is highly likely the case that when you and I struggle with doubts and disappointments and discouragements and spiritual, stressing that fact, spiritual depressions, it is often related to this fact that we have tried to apply our reason to make sense of all that's going on. To look exclusively at the side of God's providence that doesn't seem to line up with what we think we understand of God's Word. And as we're looking at that merely by the eye of the faculty of our mind, reason, limited to the material that's before us in this life, it's then that we experience the very weakness and infirmity which he here admits. It was too painful for me. It was wearisome. Children, think of it this way. You go fishing, and you have fine filament line. And as you're going about, unbeknownst to you perhaps, there it is, the rod, is, or the reel rather, is loose. And the fishing line is getting tangled up. And then you go and you reach for your rod, and you look at it, or perhaps as many have done, they just go to cast the rod. And the line goes nowhere. It snags right away. And you look down and you say, oh no, there's such a knot and knots of knots all bound up in it. So what do you do? This fine filament line you look at. Perhaps you take the reel off or if you can, you remove just the portion that has the line. And you start to stare at it. And yet it's so fine. And it's so knotted up. And so twisted that as your eyes are staring at it, you're actually exhausting your ability to look, and your eyes start to falter, and you get irritated, and you have to set it down. That's where Asaph is as he's looking at the perceived knots of this world. Everything is overwhelming him because he cannot peer into the divine revelation and everlasting truths merely by reason, looking at the basic facts. Of this world. Now, if that's the case, brethren, it points out the need we have first for the Lord's Word. That if we don't have God's Word, we are left to a most exhausting trial as we try to make sense of the things around us. But we secondly have need of His most gracious gift of faith. That faith would receive the Word of God and give help to our souls. This leads us secondly then to the source of help. And we see this in verse 17 when it says that he went into the sanctuary of God. And this reminds us that the source of help is fundamentally God himself. Let's say it this way. What is not the source of help. We can say it in several ways. There are many, perhaps, we can't go into. But one thing we see, this word until means it was too painful, but it's not anymore. And you see the evidence of that, of course, just glancing ahead when he's ridiculing himself. Verse 22, So foolish was I ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. And he's rejoicing then in all of the good things of the Lord. So a great change has come upon him. But what was not the source? Well, several things. One, his circumstance changing. That was not the source of his help. The source of his help was not all of a sudden he drew near to God and God struck down the wicked prospering. It wasn't that all of a sudden he drew near to God and everything was made right about his own circumstances. The help was not he drew near to God and he was made rich. He drew near to God and he was made healthy. He drew near to God, and his life was now measured out by the measurement of earthly prosperity. The source of help has nothing to do with your circumstances changing. Otherwise, there are multiple instances in the Scriptures that make no sense. Job being chief among them, here Asaph, David, and others, certainly above all the martyrs they went to their grave rejoicing. And instead of their circumstances changing for the better in this life, it changed for the worse. Many of them crucified and later years. Some, of course, tortured, sawn asunder, Hebrews 11 opening to us many of the pains and difficulties. Some sojourning and dying as pilgrims with not so much as the space of a foot-breadth for their inheritance. Their circumstances changed not, and yet their souls were gladdened. Why is that? Because the source of help is not in your circumstances. This is a lie of Satan. Satan will tell you, if your circumstances changed, then you'd be happy. If your wealth changed, then you'd be happy. If your family changed, then you'd be happy. If your future prospects change, then you would have happiness. And perhaps he would be right if he was measuring in the mere carnal realm. And yet, surely, if you are a professed Christian, you ought to know that whatever happiness the carnal realm enjoys, it is a fool's happiness because it will be ripped away from them in the end. What else is it not from? The source of their help is certainly not upon any sinful support. So you think of how certain things happen today. Someone has stress, so they go get drunk. Someone has stress, they go view things they shouldn't view. Someone has stress, they start ignoring the Bible and they start filling themselves with game shows. They start filling themselves with entertainment. They start going to this thing, to that park, to this place, and all these other things. These become sinful supports. Not necessarily sinful in themselves, though some are, but sinful supports because they're turning to, at best, the creature for the support of their soul which only the Creator can provide. That's wherein the sinfulness is found. Some are strictly forbidden. Never are we to turn to drunkenness. Never are we to turn to illicit things. Some are permissible, but not as supports for our soul. Friends, family, entertainment, recreation. But what the source is, again, is God Himself. He draws near to God. Notice this expression, sanctuary of God, because that's a, a, a phrase that comes up first in Exodus. You'll see it in Exodus 15, but for our sakes, notice Exodus chapter 25, when mention is made in verse 8 of this very thing. God says, Let them make me a sanctuary. But notice what he says, That I may dwell among them. And so when Asaph says, that I drew near, I went into your sanctuary. He's going into, to put it in simple and common basic terms, he went into God's house. He went to visit with God. And so you think of the ways that we speak sometimes. What did you do today? Oh, I went to so-and-so's house. Everyone understands what that means right away. No one thinks that you just went there and stood there and stared at the walls, the door, the windows. There's the implication You went in and visited with that person. Now, your words may express otherwise. You may say, I went to so-and-so's house and they weren't there. But if you simply leave it and I went to so-and-so's house, only some smart aleck would say, well, what did you do? Everyone knows that you went into and visited with the person whose house it is. Here, God is the one who has the sanctuary. It's where He dwells. And here is the fundamental source of our help. It's going to God. It's drawing near to Him. This doesn't mean we're not permitted to go with friends and family and church members, but the ultimate source of our help will not be by them. Pastors are helpful, but only insofar as their means to help you be led to God Himself. Even the Bible is but a means of grace whereby we're drawn to God Himself the true and living God. And yet, it's not only God Himself as absolute and so on, it's God as He manifests Himself in the sanctuary. And this is important. If you go back to Exodus 25, you'll notice He says in verse 8, that I may dwell among them. And then there are a variety of things, uh, furniture and so forth that's brought together, materials, And all of these things that are there. But he says in verse 22, speaking of the mercy seat above upon the ark, the ark shall be put, uh, the testimony that I shall give thee, verse 22, and there I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, the propitiation seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony and so on. What's the point? It's not Asaph coming near unto God absolute as he is in himself. It is God as he is. But it's God as he mediates himself by the means of grace foreshadowing Christ and truly through Christ. In other words, the source of our help is not the same as a Muslim's help or as an unbelieving Jew's help today or a Hindu's help. They go to their notions, false, erroneous, idolatrous views of God, and yet they approach Him without a mediator. They approach Him without the comforts of knowing that they are cleansed, pardoned, accepted, and that there are manifest, clear testimonies that this God who is altogether wise, holy, just, and good is a God who comes with peace to us, to receive us. And you think what Asaph would have known in his day, the psalmist and so on as well, that would have sung this originally, they would have known the sanctuary to be the place of not only the priestly ministry, but also the bloody ministry. The ministry where offerings were given, where the smoke was rising, where the blood was shed. They would have known the Day of Atonement. They would have known all of these varieties of of offering sacrifices, the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews will tell us, there's no remission of sins. And where was it that the shedding of blood took place? It was at the sanctuary. And so here in Asaph directing us to, in his own experience, to drawing near to the sanctuary of God, he's actually causing us to remember we draw near to God by the mediation that He has provided. Under the old covenant, by shadows that were all pointing to the reality of Jesus Christ. We read of that in Hebrews chapter 10. And you can see how this is clarified if you think through what's going on in that chapter. There is a perceived potential, anyway, struggle and difficulty. And so you get this language in Hebrews 10 when it says, for instance, in verse. Uh, 23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. With an encouragement. He's faithful at promise. Why does he have to say without wavering? But because Christians are prone to be waverers. And then likewise, he says we need to consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Why is that? Because we need that provocation. Because without it, we're left to ourselves. Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Because we're tempted to do that. All of these things. And he says again in verse 35, Cast not away therefore your confidence. He says verse 36, You have need of patience. And so on. All of this is a developed exhortation to Christians who are prone to struggle. But you'll notice that the exhortations are all founded upon the work of Jesus Christ giving us access to the Holy Spirit of holies in heaven. And so it's Christ who came not to offer the blood of bulls and of goats, but His own blood. It's Christ who offered up His own body. And thus, by this one sacrifice, verse 12, He has uh, uh, taken away sins forever. And He sat down at the right hand of God. And it's this Christ who is the one who has brought remission of our sins. And has given us, verse 19, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. And finally, verse 21, notice having an high priest over what? The house of God, the sanctuary of God. What then is said? Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, with the fuller light of all of Revelation, we have this clarity that the source of our help is drawing near to God through Jesus Christ. There's no other help. There's no other source. It's not just by an intellectual remembering. It's not just by an intellectual assertion. It's not just by acknowledging these truths. It's not as if Asaph said, well, it was all of this grief until I simply remembered the sanctuary. No, he says, until I went into. He draws near. This is the the point of emphasis. The source of our help is God Himself as reconciled to us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Children, you need to realize this. You'll face trials. Perhaps you'll have trials coming this evening. Perhaps they're 20 years down the road. You'll face trials. And you'll be asking yourself, where am I going to find help? And you'll naturally think of family members and church members and friends and perhaps at that time married and their spouse or others. But fundamentally, your great need is to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. It's only by faith in Christ that you have God assuring you of His grace. And adults, this is true to you today. Your only source, however long you've walked with the Lord, your only source, however much you've grown in the Lord, will always only be found in God through Jesus Christ. This leads us thirdly to the way of help. We've touched upon this to some extent but we need to emphasize whereas the source of help is God has reconciled us to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, the way of help, or enjoying that help, we should say, is drawing near to God, going into the holy place. Hebrews doesn't tell us, let us think and remember that we have a great high priest. He says, let us draw near knowing that we have a high priest over the house of god knowing that he's consecrated for us this way let us draw near sometimes you can tour various houses of great men of the past and mansions and so on and as you're going through the tour they'll point out these little doorways and some of them are sort of hidden they're not necessarily secret passageways but they're purposely somewhat camouflaged and the tour guide will say This was Mr. So-and-so's way of access. It was only for him. No one else used it. Now you think of that for a moment, what a special thing it would be to be that man. And in this mansion, to have a particular door that is his only to use. There are other buildings of civil significance and religious significance that have had entryways that are only for those who bear office. And no one else uses it. Brethren, you have a way of access into the best place that is particularly for you. And it is this way of access by grace through faith in Jesus Christ to God Himself. You think for a moment in your most acute crisis, when you're sitting there thinking to yourself, Oh, that I had... And what is it you would say? Oh, that I had a millionaire. Oh, that I had a doctor. Oh, that I had a counselor to give help with this relationship. Oh, that I had some surgeon that could deal with this. What if you had that? What if you had a direct line to that person? What if that person had promised you that if you call me, I will answer? What if you had that? If that's all you had, you would be infinitely the loser to what you have through Jesus Christ. You have access to the living and true God through the way of Jesus Christ, which is made for you to use. You are to draw near to God. You think of how easy it would be if we had a financial crisis and we had some rich friend, relative, etc. who said any financial problem, whatever you have, doesn't matter the amount, I'm a billionaire. You call on me, you'll get the money that day. As soon as the crisis comes, we phone our friend, our relative, whatever, the money comes. We'd have confidence to do that. It's easy in that realm because we are often carnally minded. We're often earthly in our reasoning. But it ought to be easier for us when the worst of trials comes to say, I have the Maker of heaven and earth, who has given me a way of access into His Holy of Holies by the blood of His own Son, and He calls me to come boldly. Is it not sinful that we often leave that way vacant and empty of our own use? The Lord has paved the way. He has decorated the way. He has lighted the way. He has put signs on the way to say, fellowship with me through Jesus Christ. We're to draw near to Him. To go unto Him. And this is by exercising faith in this way of Christ. So, We don't know all of the details of what Asaph necessarily intends when he says, I went into the sanctuary. But at the very least, it means he comes into the temple court and there he stands before a priest. And virtually by the priest, he is brought into the presence of God in the holy place. We also know that annually, virtually, representatively by the high priest, The believer is brought before the Lord at the Ark of the Covenant and the most holy place. But brethren, you and I have that in Christ right now. That is, as we by faith lay hold of Christ, we are before the glorious God. And that with acceptance, peace, and every provision He has promised. Why is it that we do not enjoy it? Christ says it in different occasions toward different things. He says it, you're of little faith. We could hear that and we could say, oh, how cruel of him to say that, but he's, what's he doing? He's pointing out you're living beneath your privileges. You're living underneath what the Lord has provided to you. I have given to you promises, rich access, And you're of little faith. Why would you be so beneath this? There was a professional power lifter who was first early on in the sport and naturally strong and so on and training under some uh, Olympic lifters of some renown. And he went to his first meet and he was doing well for his weight class and he got to his final lift and he says this, notorious Olympic lifter that was watching him, when he stood up with the uh, weight on his back, he laughed. And the Olympic lifter laughed because he had failed to put on the amount of weight he could have put on to win the event. And he learned from this. This lifter did. And he learned to push himself to the limit and so on at the appropriate time so that when he hit his competition, he would stand up with the greatest weight he could bear. And what's the point? How ridiculous we are at times in thinking we're mustering all when the Lord has given us promises that hold before us so much weightier provisions of life, glory, joy, and gladness. And He says, they're yours freely. Believe. Trust in Me. The exercising of faith is the trusting of what Christ has accomplished. Trusting what His Word promises. And we think that we've done something when we've mustered a little bit of strength to think that maybe there's some possibility of goodness. But the Lord says, come boldly unto the throne of grace. Come with confidence unto Me. What's He saying? In some sense, with a holy laughter, He's saying, you have so much more that I have promised you. There are so many more riches for you as you come near to Me through Christ. Faith in Christ and His promises. These are the ways. This is the way of receiving help through Christ. It is by gathering up what He is, what He's promised, what He's done, And drawing near to God in them that He may provide us all that has been purchased for us. Think of it this way. The new covenant. All of its bound up promises that you read of in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and elsewhere. Repeated in Hebrews and other portions of Scripture. All of these treasures, peace of conscience... Uh, joy in the Holy Ghost, the cleansing of sin, uh, the law of God written on our hearts that is an expression of saying so that I love obedience, fellowship with God, assurance of salvation, all of these rich things. And Christ says in the, this Lord's Supper, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. What's He saying? All of these blessings are now ratified and given to you. All of them. And so for us then to understand that, it should bring us to say, Lord, as You have given them to us, make me to enjoy them for the sake of Jesus Christ. So here, he draws near to the sanctuary of God. Build me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. The way of help is by living with Him that dwells with us. And this is only by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, Brethren, it may be that you're not struggling this evening, and by the Lord's grace, you know much of what it is to live a life of drawing near to God in faith. If that's the case, never forsake that privilege. Whatever comes to you with all of the glitz and glamour of the present age, look at all that the world offers and say, whatever it is, it is infinitely beneath the privilege I have. I have God reconciled to me through Jesus Christ. And by faith I enjoy it now. Soon enough in sight, it shall leap forward with great glory. But it may be that someone is struggling. And the realities may be not peculiar to Asaph and this psalm, but the realities of a broken world weigh heavily upon your soul, so that you find yourself well described by his words, that when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Education is fundamentally imitation. And so we see masters do things, and we learn the way they do it, and then we imitate them. Here is education in spiritual things. Here's one who was in your position. Ask the question How did he overcome it? He didn't overcome it by the ways that the world would say you should overcome it or can overcome it. He didn't overcome it by wishful thinking. He didn't overcome it by positive thinking. He didn't overcome it by drugs. He didn't overcome it by other means. He didn't overcome it by friends and family. He didn't overcome it by feasting. He overcame it by drawing near to God as reconciled through the Mediator. Brethren, if you and I are to learn in our struggles, this is the isolated and sure way of our soul's help. Remembering Christ, drawing near to God by His blood, fixing our souls upon the weight of His work, and rejoicing that God is mine and I am his. It will lead us, as we fellowship with God, as we'll see the Lord willing next week, to consider the end of the godly as well as the end, or the end of the ungodly, as well as the end of the godly. But all of that begins with drawing near to God by the blood of Christ. Here is where you must begin. It is by Eyeing the work of Christ, his promises, and crying out for his work to be applied more fully to your soul. There's a correction, of course, to those downcast by this world who perpetuate their agony by perpetually looking at the things of this world. This is in many ways spiritual insanity. The world, measured by reason alone, is a source and a provocation to our soul's weariness and agonizing pain. Now, the answer the Bible gives is not ignore those things, it's not act like they're not there, but the answer the Bible gives also is not stare at those things as if those are the things that are going to cause your soul relief. The answer the Bible gives is again, look unto Christ. And here is the need. Think of this for a moment. When it is that our souls desperately need something, we're unsatisfied till we have it. And so you hear children sometimes, to put it a little bit opposite of that, they'll say something like, I can't eat anymore because I'm not hungry. And then dessert comes out. Oh, can I have dessert? Well, I thought you weren't hungry. What's happening? Their stated fact is shown to be not a fact at all. And their appetite still is there. Well, you can reverse that into realizing that when our appetite is there, it's not satisfied until it's satisfied. And here is the need for our souls. It's not just to know about Christ. It's not just to sort of Throw up an assault into heaven by one petition. Entering in is shoving our ways through. The kingdom of God suffereth violence and the violent take it by force, Christ says. Why are they able to do so? Because they have such plain, clear understanding that here is the way of peace. Here is the way of pardon. Here is the way of acceptance. And here is the way of assurance. Help. And every blessing, it's through Christ. And so they go through it in what others would say is a violent way. What's the difference between violent ways and casual ways? Well, with the violent, there's focus. There's drive. There's energy. There's almost an assault of sorts. It comes with power. And it's not content. Just to sort of casually knock on the door. Oh, I guess you're not there and going away. There's a pounding on the door until it opens. And so Christ will talk about the importunate one who prays and how it is that there is the incessant appeal, have mercy on me. That is what Asaph is doing. He's going near, entering in. He's not content to be outside of it. He must be inside of it. So if you find yourself downcast, be sure that you are, by the way of Christ, driving into the presence of God, here is your encouragement. That blessed word, until. Believer, though it is too painful for you now, there's an until coming. It's not the word of faith nonsense. Oh, you've got money coming. It's not the word of faith heresy. Oh, you've got healing coming. But rather, it is far superior to what they set their eyes upon. You have the full provision of God through Christ strengthening your soul. That is invaluable. And it is promised to all who embrace our God through Christ by faith. Would you stand with me for prayer?